Today, we are once again joined by Ethan Choi, growth investor at Excel. We are going to be talking about e-commerce trends, predictions, and all things in between. Let's dig in. Welcome to Commerce Tea, a podcast to help you succeed on Shopify. I'm Rian. And I'm Kelly. Grab a mug and join us as we talk about all things commerce. Every aspect of your website is a variable that could be impacting your business's revenue. We all want to grow our business, and we make changes with the hopes of seeing our business grow. Maybe you add a new graphic here, new social proof on your product page there, maybe change your pricing. But do you know if this new thing is helping or hurting you? Today, testing is a requirement in understanding what is and isn't working for your business. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to test. In fact, I set up my first test in less than 10 minutes on a client's store using Meet A-B testing. After the test was live, we saw a confidence level on each of our tests to know which is actually best for the business. How? They showed us the additional revenue per view for each variant. Give our friends at Neat AB Testing a try today and start testing for your business. Head over to try.neatab.com slash commerce dash T to start your 14-day free trial. Again, that's try.neatab.com slash commerce dash T. Mesa is the easiest way to integrate any top e-commerce app or service with your online store. Designed exclusively for Shopify and Shopify Plus, Mesa's automated workflows can get back your time spent on repetitive tasks while growing your business at the same time. Join other merchants that have embraced the simplicity of Mesa's no-code approach to building workflows. You can create new ways to improve customer engagement, Encourage repeat purchases without lifting a finger, reduce manual data entry, and more through a simple point-and-click interface. And with BFCM planning around the corner, now is the time to ask the question, is my online store prepared? Optimizing every step in the shopping experience is the only way to create a lifelong customer. Get Mesa and capitalize on one of the biggest commerce events of the year. Search for Mesa in the Shopify app store and download the app today. Hello, Ethan. How are you? I'm good. It's great to to see you guys again. And um, I've loved following you guys on Twitter and and you guys hanging out and doing, you know, lots of fun things and working (laughs) on your super secretive startup. So I can't wait to hear more. I, oh, I'm, I so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. We're almost there. We're in the, we're in the end game now. We're in the home stretch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh it's boy. A, can't wait. Like, yeah. It's, good, <laughs> it's a good place to be. So very, very excited about it. Very excited. And for those of the folks listening who are like, who is Ethan Toy? Cause they haven't listened to you the first time you were on. Who are you? What do you do? Tell us a, a little bit more. I am a, a partner at Excel um, and work on growth and growth stage investments um, and, uh, spend a lot of time in e-commerce. So I lead a lot of our work at, uh, at Excel on the D2C e-commerce enablement space. And so investors in Clavio, Shogun, uh, the Shopify of Latin America called Nuvum Shop. Uh, we're investors in Algolia as well as Nava and Braintree and, you know, Etsy and lots of other e-commerce companies. And I also invest in other B2B software companies as well. And, um, dad of three, uh, and uh, puppy dad to a great golden doodle named Blue and uh, live in the Bay Area. So, <laughs> <laughs> this sounds like you have your hands full. Hands full. Um, my wife is a champ, but uh, you know, I try and I always call myself runner up dad of the year to, to my three kids. Uh, <laughs> great absentee da- dad is who I am, really. So, <laughs> I bet you're awesome. We actually just got to meet Ethan's one of Ethan's daughters, and she is. <laughs> Wonderful. So I, it's so much fun. I, this one of the best parts, like if we can find a, there's many silver linings to COVID and that, that has been one of them is I've met so many of my friends' kids and they're always <laughs> gems and they're always super pumped to be on camera. They're always like, I am here on camera in a grown up meeting. It is always, <laughs> or they're really tiny. And then they're, they're, they're just kind of like there. That's been kind of the two that I've seen. And it, it always makes me smile. I finally met uh, Rian's daughter. And every now and then Rian will text me being like, my daughter wants me to tell you, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so we're friends now. We hype each other up. 
Yeah, she's got a distinct point of view. Uh, she's about yeah. to be a junior, so that's, there's, <laughs> there's that. So, okay, so what have you been doing since the last time that we saw you, chatted with you, Ethan? Oh, gosh. Um, uh, so we threw that conference that yeah. Ron spoke yeah. at and, and was such a great speaker. So thank you for doing that. Um, so uh, that excels Ecom Connect. We threw that and uh, I've been working on it for six months. Uh, it's a job on top of a job for anyone who's throwing a conference. So it was really busy, but it was great. We had, you know, more than 2,000 people sign up and more than 1,000 people listen on the day of and uh, some great speakers, 41 speakers uh, and, um, you know, just, I think, great content. So if anyone is interested, go to the Excel website, you can see it. And after that, I basically tried to go into hibernation but as it works, um, uh, you know, funding environment is crazy. So we've been so busy here at Excel. Um, uh, our companies are raising money. We're investing in new, new businesses. Um, and uh, I try to get a little bit of time off. We're in Utah with family. And oh, my wife nice. and I celebrated our 12-year anniversary. And things oh, like congratulations. That. Oh, yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations, Mazel. That's so exciting. <laughs> That's so exciting. It's nice to take some time off. I'm going to be trying to do that next week. I'll keep you posted if I am successful. <laughs> I, you better. I'm going to hold you to it. I hope so. I'm like, Kelly, we're recording podcasts this week because next week I am going to take the week off, hopefully. Good. Since we last spoke, a certain event took place from Shopify that we so lovingly call Shopify Unite. <laughs> Uh, if you missed the recap, we do have an episode that we recap what happened on Shopify Unite. But Ethan, I would love your take on all of the announcements that took place at Unite. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I, I think uh, there are a couple of takeaways for me. One is, you know, obviously that massive change around um, the, the Shopify, I guess, um, commission from app mm-hmm. developer partners. And I know we were just talking about it, Rian. And um, <laughs> I mean... What a brilliant move from Shopify. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I think if you think about Shopify's true moat, it is this incredible ecosystem of app developers. You know, today, I think numbers close to 5,000 that are building, you know, incredible applications like Ventov and Clavium Shogun and, and, and others. Um, and to just kind of supercharge that ecosystem by giving them more money to go back and develop more dollars back into their investment, uh, into their products and go to market. It's just a brilliant move. And, you know, I'm close to Matt O'Leary, who, who heads up the app ecosystem, who's very involved in that. And I think they they were they kept it, you know, I think a, a pretty nice secret, but I, I, I was hearing rumblings about it. Um, and so I think, I think, you know, brilliant move. Kudos to Shopify. Great thing for app developers. And, and hopefully I think we see just, you know, all these products get better and better and more products come come to fruition. Um, you know, the other takeaway for me is Shopify is getting really serious about, you know, Shopify Plus and enterprises. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, um, spending so much time in the ecosystem, um, you know, a lot of a lot of what I hear is hearsay, but, you know, I try and piece it all together as an investor, right? And and I hear multiple things and you hear something enough and you try and go and investigate. Um, and one of the things I think, you know, I'd heard and, and I think has been interesting to hear about is kind of this struggle at Shopify between what was Toby's vision, which has always been to serve a very upstart entrepreneur, like just starting up, you know, Shopify core is what, you know, as, as folks know in the ecosystem versus what drives a lot of the business and revenue for Shopify, which is Shopify Plus, which today I think numbers more than 15,000 merchants and growing really quickly. And so um, if you think about Stripe as a business model and why it's been so successful, it's analogous to Stripe, which is another incredible business. We had another you know, payments business called Braintree where you basically build a product that captures all the upstarts at the beginning and then you grow with the best ones over time. And the breakouts usually drive most of your revenue at scale. And so sometimes, like in, in the case of Stripe and Branchery and these other business models where you capture folks early and then you grow with volume, you sometimes get revenue concentration of you know the top, you know, five, you know, single digit percentage drive like 60, 70, 80% of your GMB. And I think for Shopify, 
you know, I don't know if folks know the exact numbers, but, you know, my guess is it's somewhere in that range. And so, you know, for Shopify internally, do we build for the core? Do we build for the plus? Can we do both? Well, at the same time, I think there was this internal struggle, but you can see, I think, in some of the announcements on the headless side with hydrogen and oxygen and um, some of the tooling that's now, you know, becoming more sophisticated for merchants, some dev-focused tools to allow more sophisticated merchants to customize the platform to their own needs. I think all of that is a response to the fact that, you know, there are some really large businesses growing on Shopify and they, they are demanding more from the platform. And Shopify doesn't want to lose them to a, a big commerce or, or Salesforce commerce cloud or SAP Hybris. And so I think that's generally a really smart move on Shopify's part. And I think, you know, um, it's, it's this really delicate balance between between being developer-focused and being motion-focused that they're going to have to strike. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's generally in the right, right moves. And so... I'm really excited to see... I want to get in on the beta as soon as I possibly can for Hydrogen because as a developer, of course, I want to see how it's built. I want to tear it apart and see how it works. <laughs> um, building headless on Shopify, you know, we've, we've built a number of headless stores and it's what you lose. Like the most important part you lose is the theme customizer, which makes it a lot easier for merchants to go in and move things around and update content. So you're having to use a third party Uh, CMS for it, content management system. And then you have to integrate that. So you have to learn another tool on top of how their new site updates. And to see a native support, like native headless support built into Shopify already using Shopify's tooling, I'm just, I'm so excited to see how it all plays out. Me too. And, and, you know, I'm on the board of Shogun and Finbar and Nick there, they've got a product um, called Frontend, which is a fully productized frontend solution. So it's frontend as a service. It's basically a jam stack or progressive web app you know, to deliver lightning fast websites and it plugs directly into Shopify. You don't have to like piece together, you know, all the different pieces of a, of yeah. a, lightning, of a really performant front end. And so I, I think, um, I think you're right. Like um, in some ways, I, my hope is, I guess, selfishly that Shopify will, will seed some of this stuff to the, the ecosystem and just build mm-hmm. the tooling. But I do think to your point, um, Kelly, like merchants, a lot of them, you know, I think I say this all the time. A lot of people think these like D2C merchants have like big tech teams and <laughs> a super tech forward. The truth is they're busy with a primary job, which is exactly. creating whatever product that product. they're and, and so tech, that's right. And so they usually don't have a big tech team and they, they rely on, you know, great services like, you know, like Kelly and other great agencies and, and, and companies provide. So, yeah, I, I think I think we're going to have to see who steps up and, and fills that void. Um, yeah. But, you know, I'm sure Shopify is going to also increase usability and I'm sure there's many improvements along the way too. All we need are some APIs. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> <laughs> Not asking for much, just some APIs. Just some APIs. <laughs> I, I think I think both y'all are, are spot on though regarding headless. I, I'm, I'm fascinated as to what's next uh, because to your point, Ethan, um, as it pertains to Shogun, it, it's, it's like merchants need a an easy, a turnkey solution because often I've had conversation with some very, very large merchants who've come to me and said, Reen, we're thinking about doing headless and we're thinking about going totally custom. And they're telling me, they're showing me this scope. And I'm like, y'all, that's like a $1.52 million build. And they're like, <laughs> what? I'm like, that is, A, that's going to take like a year to build. Yeah. <laughs> and then B, once you've paid for it, you're going to have to then support it because you don't have the in-house technical it. team. Yeah, that's and right. that's going to be like 50 to 100 grand on its own. And then their face looks like I just um, smacked them in the face. <laughs> They're always yeah. like, oh my word, what are you speaking of? And I say, I'm not making this up. I'm telling you the truth. So so it's so funny. I mean, to go on the headless tangent, maybe just for a couple of minutes, like this headless word has been in e-commerce. Like people have been talking about this literally. I mean, you guys would know better than most. Yeah. Five to six years, right? Yeah. It's been a while, and it's the most—it's a terrible word. Too. It's a it's, terrible word. No, and and there's so much confusion. What does it mean? And I, I think um, the truth is, if you actually look into this, so let me just define it for those who are listening that may, may not know. <laughs> for me, what it means—what what it means—is uh, you sep- you separate the front end and the back end. And just to explain that, Shopify is the, initially started out as a back end. So 
before Shopify, you had to cobble together five different pieces of software, payments uh, gateway, inventory management, order management system, shipping and logistics. And, and before Shopify, you had to kind of go find five different vendors, stitch them all together. Yeah. And, and so Shopify productized that, made it so it comes out of the box, ready to go. They had a lightweight front end, and then you can get going in like 20 minutes. Beautiful. Yeah. You know, and that solved the back end. The front end piece, though, is, you know, incredibly, most merchants have really slow websites because, to be honest, Shopify wasn't built to for site speed. It wasn't built for this new age where everything's mobile first. And and so uh, there's this new way of building, you know, front end websites, which is really fast. Um, I won't get too into it. Jamstack, PWA, those who understand, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's basically the same thing. You have to stitch together five or six pieces of software. Yeah. And so, like, someone needs to come in and just combine it all together and make it as easy as Shopify to get up and running. And that's why I invested in Shogun because, like, after talking to hundreds of merchants over the last, you know, three, four years, the biggest pain point that merchants talked to me about was site speed. They said, Ethan, if you can find me the thing that gets me site speed, um, one to two seconds makes 10 to 20% conversion lift impact. I will buy that thing yesterday. So when I met Finba, <laughs> I was like, I, I got to, I got to invest. And so, um, that's, that's, um, that's that's the problem. But headless, if you really go look at the market, there's there's like less than a hundred merchants that have gone headless. So we're still like way, way, way early very in the evolution early. of headless. Yeah. Yes. We're very that is very, very early. I remember in the olden days of plus when there was sub one thousand plus users, and I don't even think we called them plus. We were just like they're big users. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But they were like developing the team at the same time. We were just <laughs> figuring things out. Oh, the glory. It, tech is so funny because you're like, oh, in the olden days, eight years ago, it's really not that long in that long. most yeah. industries. But in our industry, it's that could be 80 years. Truly. It could be. It's Truly, so, it could be. It could, yeah. be. <laughs> it could be. So much has changed. Yeah. I think a lot of people also didn't realize some of these brands like Figs could go, could get that big. Right. And then yeah. IPO on the New York Stock Exchange. And it, it's going to be really fun to watch because I think a lot of the apps in the ecosystem for Shopify started out with this SMB mentality. But even like Clavio, for example, we're now getting into customers that are massive. And so we're having to build in mm-hmm. integrations and tooling that we never expected. But I think that's all a positive thing. The, the ecosystem is yeah. becoming more sophisticated. Bigger clients, uh, um, you know, realizing they need to own their own destiny and, and own their own tooling. It's really fun to watch. Yeah. Recharge did the same thing because, you know, they, they raised yeah. that huge round. And a lot of that is going into building out infrastructure to support these enterprise level businesses that are interested in using Recharge that can't work with Shopify for right. whatever reason. And so this is, right. we're seeing all these businesses that started like focusing entirely on supporting small business on Shopify yeah. or being a small business on Shopify just exploding. And it's so fun to watch this, especially, it's, you know, a lot of us have been in here from the early days when they were just getting started. And, you know, they're well past what I'm currently doing now. But it, it's 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 cool to see that, that potential, that potential growth that Every business. The super, super secret app you guys are building, I just know it's going to be a Decacorn. Like as soon as you launch it, boom, Decacorn. <laughs> We're hoping so. I was just telling Rian today that I want to upgrade one of our flights for, for going to the UK in December to Delta One. And I was like, all right, we have to hit a certain number of users in order for me to be like, all right, I'm celebrating with this. We're so. celebrating. But I, yeah, that this growth in unicorn businesses or unicorn companies out of the ecosystem has been one of the most magical things I've ever watched. Because I don't think if you would have asked me eight years ago, could you have a unicorn business based primarily on Shopify or primarily based on e-commerce if you're not like one of the core players, right? Like, the, you know, the Shopify, the big commerce, the Etsy, I would have been like, eh, you could have like a $10 million business, you know? And now <laughs> I was wrong. Uh, I will admit we that. We were wrong. I was very <laughs> incorrect. And now we got billion dollar companies. Yeah. No, and if you look at it, the list is long. It's, you know, Clavio, uh, Recharge, Yopo. Um, yeah. You know, I think some of these categories, like when I, so I, th- I, I don't know if we talked about this last time, but when I joined Excel, I, I, I'd been looking for these investments and 
I realized, you know, when Shopify would have been investable for me as an investor, I, I think I was in college or high school. I wasn't an investor yet. It was <laughs> a long time ago. I wish I was old enough to have done that deal. Right. Um, <laughs> then he'd but, be retired and not talking to us, I think. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, just hitch my wagon to, you know, to that, that train. That would be great. Um, but, you know, I knew, I think we talked about this last time, I knew the wave was big enough. And, you know, I got some initial pushback, which was like, hey, you can't build a massive business on platforms and this platform risk. But I think there's like five big areas that have corollaries in the public markets in the Shopify ecosystem that I just knew were going to be massive. So website, Shogun, marketing automation, uh, Klaviyo, you know, subscription billing, recharge. And, um, you know, you got Yopo on the review side. And and I think, I think... Um, it's going to be interesting to see because there's new new niches that I think that folks um, p- folks ask me all the time like hey Ethan where where else are there like opportunities and I say there's so many um, there's new ways we're going to shop and so I think you know some of the things I'm seeing is like you know some of the, the if you just look at Amazon and what Amazon delivers personalized AI based recommendations there are companies tackling that I think if you think about automation for merchants like Zapier for the ecosystem there's there's that and so I think. Um, every permutation of non-e-commerce software, you will see some reflection of that in the e-commerce stack. And so we are feverishly hunting, like, where do we think, you know, these these niches, where 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 can they build a data workflow integration mode over the long term is how we think about it at Excel. I'm so fascinated by investing. I know that's a whole other yeah. conversation. I, I'm so I'm so obsessed with something I don't really do. Um, besides write <laughs> very small angel checks occasionally. But oh, that's, so you're that's you're, uh, yeah, yeah. Like I'm a casual. <laughs> Kelly and I are casual investors, but exactly. Yeah. Smaller, smaller. Um, they're not as deep. I have very like you know like women's jeans. They tend to have very small pockets. <laughs> That is me. About this, the whole po- the women need pockets movements. I, I yeah. believe in it. They it really do. Because my wife is constantly looking for a phone, and I'm like, "Why?" And she's like, "I don't have pockets." So yeah, doesn't it's a real Yeah, it's a real thing. If I'm going to write a big check, I need a big pocket. You know what I mean? It's the only. It's really the only way. We gotta okay. fix that. Yeah, <laughs> we gotta fix that. We gotta fix yeah. that. Hey, Rian, what can I do to help my support team be more efficient? I recommend Gorgeous. Gorgeous combines all your communications channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone into one platform and gives you an organized view of all help requests. This saves your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. It sounds great. What else can it do? With Gorgeous, you can pre-write and save responses to your most frequently asked questions. You even have access to the customer's order information, so you can personalize the responses with things like an order or tracking number. This will allow your support team to focus on complex questions. Brands like Olipop, Deathwish Coffee, and Steve Madden have reduced their response times and increased efficiency. This sounds like a great way to also increase sales and brand loyalty. Where can I learn more? Check out Gorgeous by visiting commercetea.com forward slash gorgeous and try Gorgeous for free for two months. Again, that's commercetea.com forward slash G-O-R-G-I-A-S. Okay, so I've got a question for you about an article you wrote on June 3rd. I know that was a little while ago, but everything in it is still really spot on in my opinion. So, I love it. it was like a month and a half ago, and you're really like, good so long ago. <laughs> I guess it wasn't that long, like, but again, it was like years ago. Yes, <laughs> you're uh, like, do I remember writing yeah, the article? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you and David Walter wrote this article June third. I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, you hit on some key points, and uh, so I, I kind of synthesized some of them. So. Okay, so here's here's a question I have. This is a hot topic in the D2C and CPG space, and recently I've been hanging out in those spaces. Will non-digitally native players make digital plays? So like if you you know what I mean. So like and for for those of you who are like, what is digitally native? So like if so the opposite of all birds. What's yeah, the opposite yeah, yeah. of all birds? Like a Nike. Well, <laughs> you know what's what's fascinating? So like actually at the conference XO Ecom Connect, we had um, you know, the the chief digital offices for some luxury brands, like really old school story brands like Gucci and, um, you know, Bottega Veneta, uh, so caring brands. And then we, we had it for, you know, Coach and Kate Spade. And um, and then, you know, also uh, we have f- friends at Cartier. And so 
those uh, brands, um, I, th- I think for them, they are trying to make the most progress in terms of moving digital mm-hmm. because so much of their experience is you come into a beautiful store, you know, there's people, you know, wearing suits, greeting you, they serve you champagne, and there's just this very luxurious experience. So how do they, they they've been a little slower to adopt like digital experiences and how do we create a luxury experience online and on your phone and so you know they've hired these you know chief digital officers to bring them you know closer to the d to c brands that were born native so i think at this point my assumption and i think my perspective is every single offline brand has some digital presence it's the sophistication level Mm. And how how well they've integrated the offline and online experience where there's vast differences. And so I think, you know, the hope is over the next two to three years, you will see some of these more traditional brands realize like, hey, look, you can still create luxurious experiences offline. Uh, sorry, online. Um, you got to somehow tie it to offline experiences, whether you're, you're sending, you know, um, like an experience where they open up a package. Um, but, you know, we all know where things are headed. Ecom penetration is only going up. And I think even the, you know, the brands that rely so heavily on offline experiences, if they're not waking up to it now, they will wake up in 10 years realizing that that is <laughs> going to be the, the primary way people buy stuff. So I have an opinion on this. <laughs> What's your opinion? I, I know. Big surprise. I have an I, opinion. I, I, have a thought too. Off, I love when Kelly starts off a sentence like that. It just <laughs> Okay. So we have a lot of these more historical, non-digitally native brands that have always existed in offline mode, retail mode. Like that is what they do. Like a lot of these luxury brands. And I think there's this push for them to get online, which makes absolute sense. But they're trying to adapt a DTC model, which will not work for their brand. They're historically not that way. They should not try to fit themselves and morph themselves to become a direct-to-consumer brand because that's not who they are. Deep down, that's not who they are. And I feel like, you know, we, we talk a lot about like blending and how everything ends up flowing, trying to end up like looks the same, functions the same. I feel like a lot of these, these uh, you know, non-digitally native luxury brands in particular are in such a unique position here to redefine what it means to sell online instead of try to be like every other direct-to-consumer brand. I have an antidotal, two antidotal stories re- regarding this. One is uh, last year, maybe I acquired too much Gucci on the internet. Maybe, allegedly that <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Uh, and maybe my husband bought it for me because I was like, I really want, th-. I'm that person who's like, I really want this, but I don't want to spend the money. Oh, weird. I got it. Okay. So that, <laughs> so, it, <laughs> so I acquired a few Gucci pieces and then we started getting mail from Gucci, but not just like random mail, like handwritten letters. And at the holidays, we got a gift and it was, uh, it was from the same person. So we are, we have a relationship manager at Gucci. And I thought, that's really special. And then I have a friend who works at Cartier and she works uh, in customer service. And her whole job is helping people give that concierge level experience via the phone while showing them the website. So like really walking them through. So these Mm. are two examples of those legacy brands, which I think are doing a really good job, but they're not doing it to your point, Kelly, like a D2C brand's doing it. They're like, let me really, really show you. It's like that champagne moment, right? Okay, I can't give you the champagne in real life. I'm going to send you this thing for absolutely free because you spent X amount of money and they never even had that conversation. Let me show you what it feels like to be a part of Gucci, to be a part of Cartier. And at least, and again, this is antidotal with my friend at Cartier. She has clients now. Uh, and I were, I used to work old school, you know, IRL retail where you would have a book of business and you would call your, you know, you'd have the credit card on file and you'd call them and you'd say, Hey, guess what I got in. Okay. And then you would, and then you would do it. And she now has a book of business exactly like that on Cartier. And she met them all through Cartier.com. And I just think that that's really cool that Cartier and, and Gucci group uh, or Kerrig is Kerrig, right? Yeah. yeah, Was able to uh, flip because a lot of other luxury brands, you can't even buy stuff online still. You know, it's, it's so funny because they talk about it too. I mean, hopefully I'm not speaking for them, but they talk about it culturally, like a lot of their job as chief, chief digital officers is to just to create the cultural change. 
that yeah. you, you realize you've got to go and make that leap. And so, yeah, no, it's fascinating to see. I mean, like one example is, in, um, you know, people still love the experience of like kind of walking through a real life store. And so mm-hmm. a lot of these brands, they, they basically connected a Zoom or some other video conferencing and the associate would just walk around and show them the goods and turn it around and, and kind of like a live shopping experience, but really personalized. And so... I think um, it's going to be fascinating to see, like, live shopping, we talked about last time, is just very yeah. massive here in the U.S. It's a beautiful combination of, like, really engaging, you know, like, uh, selling of the product because it's live and you can answer, uh, they can answer questions, but it's one-to-many for the brands. Mm-hmm. And so instead of, like, a store where a store, a store associate is one-on-one and you don't get the leverage, live shopping is going to give these brands an ability to, to do one-to-many but make it feel pretty personalized. And so that's going to be really powerful here. I love that. Like during the pandemic, obviously, I'm trying to find ways to do fun things with my team. We're already a remote company, so we were kind of going to have to find some something to do virtually. But being able to do like an escape room virtually over Zoom, like being able to take that that in-person experience and bring it online to some capacity while still interacting, I thought that was the coolest thing. And I want to see more brands definitely doing this. Yeah. Yep. It's it is for sure the future. I can't wait to see where where the the enterprise and legacy companies go, and then also where the D to C companies go to try to outmaneuver them on the way. <laughs> so, yep. Um, okay. I also want to talk about data privacy changes slash cookie apocalypse, yeah. cookie get in, whatever we want to call it. <laughs> uh, it I, sounds like such what, a friendly way to die. Cookie pop. Right? We're closing the lid on the cookie jar. Yeah. You yeah, just get right. pelted with cookies. I mean, there's worse <laughs> ways. This could be like an hour conversation. I've spent so much time uh, in on this topic. So I, I have a few thoughts that I can share that okay. um, might be relevant. You know, everyone saw this coming for a long time. People have talked about third-party cookies going away. And for the audience, third-party cookies are these like little pixels. They embed them into... Uh, um, into uh, display ads and they track users from site to site. And it's, it's a short snippet of code that gets embedded in your browser. And without typically users knowing, it's tracking them, all their activity as they go you know, from site to site. And that's how you know, um, all that data gets used by third parties where uh, when, when you go back on Facebook, you're getting a Nordstrom ad that says, hey, you're <laughs> looking at this black shoe and you're like, that is super creepy is because of these third-party cookies. Um, and so the whole ad industry has been moving away from these third-party cookies because it is it is an invasion of privacy, if we're all honest. And it, it, it's kind of the way things have worked, but it doesn't mean it's the way things should work going forward. And so, um, you know, along with that, Apple has decided to change the way, <laughs> you know, yes. developers used to be able to track all the apps and where you were going on your phone which apps you were using and use that data to try and build a profile on you too. Um, and so now Apple has changed that. And so you're, you're getting into the situation where the only reliable data that you're going to have going forward is the data that you collect yourself as a brand or a merchant. And so mm. we call that first party data. Um, there's also another version of that data called zero party data where instead, because uh, first party data, you embed a cookie, but the user knows it and they're, they're letting you. Zero-party data is another form that people talk about, which is where the users actually give you data because you're doing a quiz or you give them some discount and and the user provides information that you can use to then personalize the services. And I think in the end, if we step back, you know, there's this movement towards zero-party and first-party data because of privacy reasons. And, and I think the fundamental question is, do users want a personalized experience? And who do they want that personalized experience from? I think what we're going to see is going forward, users do want a personalized experience. Like we don't want to get just you know random ads for stuff we don't <laughs> care about, but um, we want it from the brands that we've given, we've established a relationship with, and we've given them permission to track us. For example, our, our investment in Clavio was largely based on the thesis that all the data that Clavio collects is first-party data. And with these cookie changes and privacy changes, all that first-party data becomes more and more valuable over time because you can build profiles of people and personalize offerings based on that data because they've given that to you or they've given you permission to track it. All the third-party data, it used to get aggregated by these data brokers. Um, 
And they would then just try and use algorithms to match you. And, um, and they just, uh, all that data becomes stale over time. And so you're seeing this big shift in the industry where actually, um, for better or for worse, the large advertising players who do get access to first party data, Google, Facebook, Apple, um, a lot of the power is going to get consolidated into those guys. And the rest of the ad industry that collects third party data, they are freaking out and trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> yes, they um, are. Because essentially the oil that they've got that's coming out of the ground is 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 um it's gonna get basically moved, you know, uh, routed towards other people. So it's a massive shift. But one sorry, one more thing I might say is for merchants, what does it mean for like the average e-commerce merchant? It means that um if you can't if you don't have third party data, um and stop me if, if this is um, getting too complicated, if you have questions, but for, for merchants, um, for them to go do traditional uh, Facebook advertising or Google ad spend, they did rely on third-party data, right? So you, you get these cookies and you say, hey, like anyone that's gone on Nordstrom store, I want to be able to retarget them on Facebook. And and so you'd, you know, you'd spend that money feeling confident that you could get the, the right kind of attribution. But now that third-party cookie goes away, I think merchants are realizing, oh, do I, if the dollars that I spend on Facebook, will I be able to target the right people? And, mm. um, and that's, that's something that merchants should be thinking about. But ultimately, the best way to protect themselves in the long run, despite all these changes, is to collect email addresses, phone numbers, um, and other ways where you can communicate directly. Just like you, you got that um, free gift from Gucci, find ways to communicate directly and own that relationship with your customer. So sorry about the ramble, but that's a quick synopsis of what's going on. Oh, no. I mean, I'm obsessed with this, uh, uh, this happening <laughs> as it pertains to my vertical, right? My core vertical, which is SEO, because in my mind, if this is the moment that you should really be double, triple, quadrupling down on SEO, because it, that's, uh, you can own that. That's on your site versus yep. your and granted there's the paid paid seo so that's buying ads but what you can really really control is your content and your meta content and your keywords and all of that stuff and yet i still see people and i, I get it right because you want the easy win you want the ads because it is the easy win it's the easy traffic i understand and it does in the short term boost you up in, in search rankings like i i understand it and also it's really boring to do seo and i'm the first one to <laughs> doing it for a really long time. Like you're like, oh my gosh, my brain is just melting. But this, I think this is the moment where if people really don't step back and think, how am I going to make sure that my store has longevity in six months, a year, two years? Because as you mentioned, the Apple change has happened and and is continuing to happen with emails. And we, we did a podcast about it a couple of weeks ago. But when Chrome rolls it out, right? And Chrome pushed it back by yep. a couple of years, which I was like, thank you, Google. <clears throat> Thanks, Google. Because <laughs> we were getting ready. We're over here, over a vent of, we're like, let's buckle up. We've been doing all of this comms <laughs> around it. But anyways, I digress. I'm very fascinated by what's to come in this. And it's it's a topic I could talk about for hours. Because <laughs> I, yeah. Anyways, the, I digress. I digress. I can keep a going. Topic. No, it is fascinating. And I think a lot of people um, are, are worried that like advertising goes away. It does not go away. It, it actually just consult. Like if you look at Facebook and Google's um, revenue growth this quarter, it exploded because like I talked about, um, power consolidates to the platforms that collect first party data. And that's what they have. And so you've seen them accelerate. Um, so it will be interesting to watch. Okay. So... One of the last questions for you, because again, this is the challenge speaking to you, Ethan, is we just can chat about the same thing for a really long time. And then I don't get to all the questions that I want to ask you. And then we have a 14 hour episode. Now we have a 14 hour episode and we're just sitting here nerding out about cookies and, and also concierge service, which I could also talk about for hours. So anyways... I want to talk in your article, you talk about the path to 50% penetration uh, yeah. it, it, as, as it pertains to e-commerce. Talk to me about it. What do you think? When are we going to get there? Except yeah. <laughs> um, 
So I make a prediction. I didn't specify the years because if I do, I'm going to be wrong. But um, <laughs> no, it works. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I say like in the very near future, and I do really believe it. Um, we're at 17% here in the US today as at the end of 2020. Um, and so I'm primarily talking about the US because the rest of the, you know, LATAM's down close to 5% econ penetration. Southeast Asia is about 5%. You know, as I talk about in the article, China and Korea are actually the leaders and they're at 25%. And so we have, you know, basically what, 33% to catch up to get to that 50%. And what's that pace going to look like? So for me, um, <clears throat> last year during the pandemic, we jumped uh, 5%. Um, that was about 10 times more than any penetration we've ever had. Like we usually were the steady, like half, half a percent to 1% every year. And so in one year, we jumped from 12 to 17. Um, so if, if you think about part of it is, you know, these marketplaces like Amazon continue to make progress and drive a lot of GMV. That's that's a big part of the story to get to 50% e-com penetration. But as I talk about in the article, D to C, I believe, is going to drive, you know, a very, very large portion of it. Um, because, you know, if you, if, you, if you think about what's happened, we've... Merchants finally have the tools to sell online. Shopify, e-commerce, mm-hmm. Newroom mm-hmm. Shop, all these companies have democratized it. So you don't need developers anymore. You can actually go do it yourself. And then you can use it as smart agency. Like Kelly used to really help you dial it in and, and, and make it just incredible, right? Um, and so, you know, that's a big part of the story. These platforms are going to continue to grow. And Shopify today unbelievably trades at just under $200 billion in market cap. Now, prior to the pandemic, that was about that was that was close to forty billion. So it's five x <laughs> in about eighteen months. And I, I personally believe I'm not giving stock advice, so let me just put the caveat out there. But I personally believe Shopify <laughs> is destined to get to a trillion market cap. Like they're making all the right moves, and they're at one point seven three million merchants as at the end of twenty twenty. I say, say in my article, it's undoubted that they're going to get to five million plus merchants at some point. And so if you just think about all the GMV that will be driven at that point, that's a lot of GMV and that would make up a big portion of this continued penetration or shift towards e-commerce spend. And I just think, um, you know, as, as a lot of our experiences, um, you know, offline shopping, we just realize, um, you know, live shopping is a more fun experience and we get more details and we can buy it faster, get it to our house quicker. Um, all these, all these new ways of shopping um, are going to also accelerate their trend. And so, you know, it might be within the next 10 years, <clears throat> um, you know, don't come back. Maybe, hopefully this, this podcast, we maybe have a 10-year anniversary episode and I'm right, <laughs> where we have 50% econ penetration and we can do some more bad dancing and, um, and, and so forth. But, well, um, I thought our dancing was good, but okay, that's fine. That's fine. I'm referring to myself. I'm referring to myself. Um, let, me, let me be clear. But... Um, you know, and the the other thing I talk about in the article is um, a lot of non-e-commerce players are making big acquisitions in, in e-commerce. So you saw Stripe, which is a payment gateway, which is e-commerce, but they went and acquired TaxJar, which is like Avalara tax software. You saw Intuit, um, Intuit acquired Trade Gecko, which is inventory management. Mailchimp acquired LemonStand, which is like a Shopify platform. Wix acquired Rise.ai. So like, all these tools that like people need to sell online, there's just more and more options. And so um, this DOC thing, as people know, it's real. And um, and it'll be interesting to see where, I guess the key thing to watch out for is like how much is going to be Amazon marketplace driven and how much will be DOC driven. And my hope is it's, it's, it's largely DOC driven um, and merchants really own their own destiny uh, and own their relationships with their customers. Okay. So I'm going to ask, I was going to say, we're going to, I'm going to ask you the last question before we get there. Um, <laughs> store shout outs are fun, but I want to do book shout outs today. So how about we shout out a book that we are either we currently reading? Time. We did. We did. <laughs> we're going to do it again. I do it again. Oh, geez. Okay. Actually, you know what? Uh, the Ride of a Lifetime, Robert Iger, which is the story Ooh, that of one's been um, on the my chairman list. Of, of Disney. And you know, like we, we see today what Disney looks like, which is like this massive conglomerate of ESPN plus Disney 
plus, um, I think it's ABC networks, um, uh, plus the, you know, the theme parks, but it's a really fascinating story into like how this amazing consumer brand and conglomerate kind of evolved over time and adapted to changes. Um, you know, so it, it goes into them making these big acquisitions and how they pulled them off. And the personalities in the backgrounds of the people, like Robert Iger, he worked at, he, wo- he was a TV producer. And so he, he kind of understood what folks needed. And then as he came in, he realized like power comes in leveraging distribution, but having all the content. And so um, he went on this M&A strategy to go buy ESPN, all these other brands. Um, but it talks a lot about the Disney Plus streaming initiative mm. and how they thought about it. And realizing the changes that were happening from cinemas no longer being like the primary method of launching uh, premieres to, hey, we've got to figure out this digital in-home strategy. And they went and made this acquisition of this streaming platform and then built up Disney Plus and, and did this massive launch. But it, it, it's, it's to your point around like, how do these like old school offline brands, how do they mm-hmm. adapt to this new digital world? It's a really great story and case study of a big company doing that and the complications, the politics, the infighting, the the way they kind of work through it to become what Disney is today, which is a really impressive modern brand that has been, has been able to adapt. So it's kind of, there's no, I mean, last night I love talking about some of the, the areas that I'm passionate about, but this is like just a great corporate evolution story, I guess. So. I love a corporate evolution story. <laughs> One of my friends used to work with Bob Iger and I, I was fortunate enough to uh, work in a leadership capacity with her for a while and watching her because she had learned a lot about leadership from Bob. I do you like I call him by his first name. I'm like, oh, you know, me and Bob, we, we go back, we go back. <laughs> uh, watching her leadership style, which is very different than mine. And then I spoke to her later and she's like, well, I learned a lot from watching Bob. And so it's just, it's kind of cool when we're in these environments where we meet all these different people who come from different corporate backgrounds, SMB backgrounds, and watching them lead and their thoughts on things and how each person, how someone like Bob Iger can then influence her who then influences me and how many other people was, did he influence in, in corporate strategy and leadership strategy? It's just so cool. Just, it's very cool. It's yeah. So cool. I mean, I think one of the things that stood out to me was he he really understood his people and what motivates them, but like motivate how to tie that into the <clears throat> the logical. <clears throat> because as he's acquiring these companies, you know, you're dealing with CEOs who are used to running the show. And so how do you get them on board and, and aligned to the, the broader vision? So I think all of us, whether it's like us as CEO of our own companies, me as an investor working with my own, my own team or with founders, um, just learning the art of persuasion, but, you know, aligning um, objectives and aligning spiritually, I think it's a really, really great case study and, and a great, great leader there to learn from. That's great. I'm going to check that out for sure. Yeah, Kelly, that has been on my list. What, what's your, what is your book that is not Atomic Habits? <laughs> I went back to make sure this wasn't the same book that I shouted out. Um No Rules Rules uh, by Reed Hastings and Aaron Meyer. It is the Netflix book. Uh, Again, talking, you know, about reading leadership styles from other companies. I definitely can't say I agree with everything that, Mm, uh, that they do, but I feel like it's cool to see the insight into a company like Netflix that just boomed during the, the blockbuster era and just watching the change in how people were consuming content and how they adapted as well, because they still offer the DVDs plan as well, if you want DVDs. Um, it's a really, really great book. I, I highly, highly recommend it. It's an easy read as well. It is easy read. I like it. I enjoyed that book. What about you? So uh, I got this book in the mail randomly. Well, I thought it was random, but apparently my, so my grandfather's 95. And he's he's brilliant. He's a, a professor emeritus of statistical engineering. Okay, so and that that needs to be said because normally if you just get a book about behavioral economics in the mail, you're like, why am I getting a book about behavioral economics in the oh, mail? That's not from I, Kelly. Yeah, that's not from Kelly. It just it just arrived at my house with no note. Like I was just like, who sent me this book? Anyways, like two weeks later, he emails me. He's like. 
did you get the book? I was like, oh, that's who this is from. This makes so much sense. Anyways, the book is called Misbehaving, The Making of Behavioral Economics by Richard H. Thaler. It's very, very cool. It it doesn't sound that cool unless you're an economist, which I am not. But one of the principles in it is that uh, typically economists, assume rational thought and rational actors. And that's not actually what happens in society. And so that's that's the premise of the book. I, I, I do really recommend it. It is fairly interesting. I would say it's not like, with no rules, rules, you can just like sit down and read that in one day. I will say misbehaving will take you a couple of weeks because you're like, it's a little <laughs> chewy. You know, it's like a grad school book where you're like, okay, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking oh, that about sounds it. sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really selling it to everybody, I think. Also, it, also it won a Nobel Prize in economics. And, you know, the, the cool thing about that is that it's definitely going to be a little bit boring because that's always what happens if, if a book uh, wins a, a Nobel Prize. I but, do find that so fascinating, like trying to <laughs> trying to make sense of how irrational human beings are is a fascinating yeah. topic. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what this whole book is about, and then and then how to sell to them, how how economic behaviors bend to them. Uh, anyways, check it out, love it. I think y'all will like it. And Sounds the really end. cool. Yes. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Actual yeah. final question for you. Last the same one we question. ended on last time. Where can we find you on the internet? Um, I am at. Uh, you can look uh, excel.com is is um, you know you can see kind of what Excel does and and some of our thought pieces. Um, uh, I am also on Twitter at uh, Ethan Choi, C H O I seven. I guess that's my Twitter handle, and I'm on LinkedIn. So look me up, and um, you know I love trying to help e-commerce startups and merchants and um, anyone trying to build great software companies. Uh, so uh, hit me up; I'm happy to help. I don't think we're connected on LinkedIn. I, <laughs> I just discovered uh, today that away messages can be set on LinkedIn. Uh, if you're paying for premium. And so I updated my away message to be for the next three months, which is the maximum amount of time saying, thanks for reaching out. I don't monitor my DMs on LinkedIn. Email me instead. Also, don't want to outsource work and I don't want demand or lead generation help. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just added you. So now we're LinkedIn. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. So if you message me, you can see my away message. (laughs) But she'll accept you. She'll accept you. Yes. Yeah, please accept me. (laughs) always of course uh ethan thank you so much for joining us again this is always such a great time anytime you guys are such a joy um and thank uh, you and thanks for tuning in and thanks again to our sponsors for supporting this episode we have a youtube channel you can visit it at youtube.com slash commerce tea if you like our podcast please leave us a review on apple podcasts Reviews make us happy if they are positive reviews if they are not positive (laughs) reviews we just like to text each other complaining about be salty <laughs> you can subscribe to commerce tea on your favorite podcasting service we post new episodes every wednesday so grab your mug and join us then we'll see you next week bye-bye clocked in is a time clock for shopify with clocked in your team members can easily clock in and out of their shifts from anywhere you can manage your team's hours as they work remotely with an intuitive interface that can be used from desktop tablet or mobile Check it out at clockedin.io or in the Shopify app store.